Highway to Safety, Episode 12. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Highway to Safety podcast. My name is David Wallace, the Traffic Safety Guy, and this is the podcast about traffic safety, providing you knowledge, raising your awareness, and giving you the tools to be a safer driver. On this show, I discuss traffic safety issues, give you tips and suggestions on what we can all do to be safer on the road, and bring you conversations with policymakers, traffic safety professionals, and the people who are making a difference every day of their lives to make our roads and highways safer for all of us. What do you say? Are you ready for our journey together on this highway to safety? Let's get started, shall we? Hello and welcome to the Highway to Safety podcast. I'm glad you dropped in. And on this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Judge Peggy Hora. Now, if you don't know who Judge Hora is, she's an international expert on what's something that's called drug courts and DWI courts, sometimes called treatment courts. But these are courts that really look at individuals that are addicted to alcohol or to drugs, continue to commit crimes. And these are courts that really look at what can we do to change this person's behavior. In this situation, what Judge Hora and I will talk about is what's called DWI courts, or courts that focus on those individuals that keep drinking and driving and keep committing the crime and keep returning back to the system and not learning the lesson. What we know from a lot of the data and the, the arrest records and the research is that typically, at least in the United States, of all the people that commit the crime of drunk driving every year, approximately one third of them have a prior conviction. They've done it before. So that means two thirds of those people don't come back. They don't repeat the crime. They understand, they learn their lesson. The arrest, going to court, the paying the fines and costs, the probation that they may have been ordered to, to do, any uh, treatment or education or whatever the process, whatever the sentence was, that had an impact on those individuals. And they said, I don't like it here. I don't want to do this anymore. And they changed their ways. They changed their behavior. However, for a third of those individuals that are out there, they don't seem to understand that we mean it when we say don't drink and drive. And here we have to really look at some other issues and other avenues. What can be done to change their behavior? For that one third of those arrested, you'll find that the vast majority of them are either abusing alcohol or addicted to alcohol. And there is a big distinction between those two. What we're going to be looking at here for this episode is those that are addicted to alcohol or drugs. Those individuals that keep coming back and don't change their way. When I started, I was a assistant prosecutor, and I mentioned this before, back in 1985, my thought was that at that time, of course, to make the community a safer place. I was going to be tough on crime, not deal things out, and make sure that whoever I was dealing with, whatever case it was, that person would face the consequences. And one of the questions that every prosecutor has to look at whenever they deal with any type of crime, and a judge has to consider as well as part of sentencing, are we looking at punishing the person or rehabilitating the person so they don't commit the crime? Or is it a combination? which is also appropriate. When looking at those individuals that are addicted to alcohol, to drugs, what we know is from the research that jail and prison does not change their behavior. Oh, sure. While they're in jail, while they're in prison, they may not be doing uh, drugs or drinking alcohol at that time. But as soon as they get out, the vast majority of them are arrested for a new crime within three years. And within that three years, 95% of them will relapse into that addiction issue. So we need to do something more than use jail or prison. I'm not saying that that's not a tool that should be used or considered when appropriate. Absolutely. But if there's something else that would work better to change behavior and to change someone's way, why wouldn't we do that? I've learned over the years just how hard change is for all of us. I'll ask this question for you to think about. Did you make a New Year's resolution this year? This episode is being broadcast or being made live the end of the month of January. And many people make a resolution at the beginning of the year to say, okay, I want to be healthier. I want to exercise regularly. I want to uh, stop smoking. I want whatever it is. Typically, it's something to improve ourselves, to make ourselves a better person. And here's the question. Are you still doing that resolution? If you are, fantastic. That's great. 
but many people have already started to slide by the wayside now. Many of us have problems continuing that change, that work, to make ourselves better. What we know from the research is that typically it takes 10 years of making the same resolution before we actually commit to and follow through with that effort. And so that's why change, we sometimes forget, change is hard for all of us. Going back to as when I was a prosecutor, I would say, well, judge, this person here has been arrested and convicted of drunk driving. They should have, I'd recommend X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. And if it's a first-time offense, maybe probation, some fines and costs, education program, treatment program, depending on the individual. Because I knew it was unlikely that the person would get jail on a first offense. But on a second offense, I'd be there saying, judge, they didn't learn from the first time. Clearly, that wasn't enough. Now we need to be more, give them more of a consequence. We need to make sure that they understand we will not tolerate this, this committing this crime that puts them at risk and our lives at risk. So I'd ask for jail time, whatever it would be. And then there'd be the third time possibly for them. And I'd say, well, judge, clearly that wasn't enough. Give them more jail time. And if it's a fourth time, give them even more time. Really sock it to them, judge. And many times the judge would. Because our belief was at that time that clearly they just need to understand and that they needed more time incarcerated to learn the lesson. And what we know now is that was wrong. For those addicted individuals, as I've said, change is hard. It's even harder when you have a chemical substance involved in that effort. When I was the director at the National Center for DWI Courts, I would see how people would change using a very strong program of intensive treatment and intensive supervision. And it worked. I'll talk more about that afterwards here. A little bit more of what I saw. I'll talk a little bit more about how the brain has changed because of that addiction after my conversation with Judge Hora. But if you're interested in seeing anything about the, anything about the research or, or looking at the websites that are mentioned, you can find all of that information at highwaytosafety.com slash 12 or 1-2. But I think you'll find, as you listen to our discussion, that DWI courts are another tool, another important component into the broad, comprehensive approach to ending impaired driving. I think you'll find that this is one more effective program that should be implemented wherever you live at. Let's go ahead and transition over to my conversation with Judge Peggy Hora. I am thrilled to be here with Judge Peggy Hora, who retired from the California Superior Court after serving 21 years where she had a criminal assignment that included presiding over the drug treatment court. She's a former dean of the B.E. Whitkin Judicial College of California and has been on the faculty for the, the National Judicial College for over 20 years. And one of the things we're going to get into is that she's also a global leader in the solution-focused court movement. And because of that, was just named a senior judicial fellow for the Global Center for Drug Treatment. In 2009-2010, she was a thinker in residence appointed by the Premier of South Australia to study and make recommendations on the Australian justice system. And in 2013, she was a visiting scholar at the University of Tasmania School of Law, where she just returned back from there. Judge Hora, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And as I sort of indicated before we started this conversation, what I'd like to talk to you a little bit about is DWI courts, what they are, why they're important, who's involved, how they get set up, and what's happening internationally with these as well. So I guess let me just go ahead and start right off and ask you, what is a DWI court? Well, a DWI court is a different approach to the problem of uh, chronic recidivist, dangerous, impaired drivers. Uh, we know that from almost all studies, and it seems to hold up internationally, about 70% of people who get arrested for driving while impaired uh, don't reoffend. But it's that 30% that come back over and over again, endangering us on the roadways uh, that we have to pay attention to. So DWI courts are a way to focus in on these high-risk, high-need offenders who, without some intervention, will continue to drive impaired. And when you say high-risk, high-need, we might also say that they're addicted. Is that a fair statement? It's clear that one or two things are going on. Either they're so criminally, uh, their criminal thinking is so high that they don't give a rip about who else is endangered on the road, or, most likely, uh, they are alcoholic or addicted to other drugs and simply cannot stop using 
without some intervention. Now, some people will say, well, they can sure stop driving, and yes, if that works, that would be great. But the problem is, once you start drinking, your decision-making is impaired, and then you go on to your old patterns of driving. So it's not just stopping the driving. We really have to intervene with the alcohol consumption. And I'm going to talk mostly about alcohol-impaired driving today, although there's a whole other issue with drugged driving. So anyway, um, using the model of adult drug treatment courts, which are now almost 25 years old, it's a model of a coordinated effort using uh, resources, compelling treatment, and people say, oh, well, people have to hit bottom or they won't get better, and that's not true. We can raise the bottom and, in fact, coerce um, patients in treatment do better than so-called voluntary participants. And using the power of the court with close monitoring and this problem-solving interdisciplinary approach to really focus on the person and their issues. And it's a long process. You know, these courts are 18 to 24 months um, along, uh, typically that people participate that long before they can graduate. Uh, they have to have entered a plea uh, before they come into the courts, so there's no um, question that they're uh, guilty, that they're convicted, and we don't have to worry about what are the facts of the case. The only thing we're concentrating on is how can we help this person make the internal change they're going to have to get to in order to stop drinking stop using other drugs. Now, you mentioned at one point there also that the whole idea of coerced treatment is more effective than voluntary treatment. Why is that? That makes no sense to most of us that just think about, well, if I want to go in, I should do better than someone that tells me what to do, right? Well, that's because change is really hard. First of all, I would argue that there's not much voluntary treatment anyway. Uh, on the one hand, there, there is spontaneous uh, recovery. Some, there are some people who wake up and say, I'm not going to do this anymore, and that's very rare. But other people who get into treatment, it's the legal system, spouse, their job, their health. There's some other outside force that's forcing them into starting to make that decision. What happens then is they get there and about 90% of them leave. What coerced treatment can do is keep them there long enough in the treatment environment so that the treatment professionals can use their skills and training to start to help that person make that long-term change. So when you think about it that way, you know, it does make good sense. Our retention rates are very, very high, up to 75% in uh, adult drug treatment courts, and, you know, most of these statistics are based on adult drug treatment courts because we have much more research there. Uh, there have been some evaluations of uh, DWI courts, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes. Sure. But we, we do know that having the power of the course and having the coercive factor, the sort of Damocles that, you know, that possibility of going to jail, of being sentenced, of going to prison if there's, you know, multiple DWIs uh, to make it a felony, uh, really does help the person stay the course. Also things like uh, testing to make sure they're not using alcohol. It's, it's a zero alcohol tolerant court, no drinking whatsoever, so they're monitored closely in a variety of, of ways, and that helps people stay the course of their treatment. They know that they can be tested at any time to see if they've been drinking. Then that helps them exercise refusal skills, we call them, to say, no, uh, better not do this, or they can tell their buddy, gosh, I'd love to have a beer with you, even if that's not true, but, you know, my probation officer might be around to test me tonight, so I can't do it. So that's why the coercive uh, patients do best in treatment. And it sounds like, too, that's why the programs are longer than uh, we would expect, 18 months, you said, to, 20, to two years, because of the time it takes to really have that internal change. Exactly. Yeah, the, the thing is, we don't want somebody to just comply for the short term, and then they can go do what they want. If it's only external force 
are only punishment, then the change will only last as long as they have the ability to be punished. So you hear it all the time. People get out of prison and go out and commit a crime, you know, use drugs, whatever, the very first day that they're out. You say, geez, didn't they, you know, learn their lesson? And the answer is no, because that was external. You know, we're now seeing that much more likely that people will stay off drugs, stay off alcohol, if they have their reason for doing it rather than the external reason. Well, and you mentioned there, we talked a little bit about the intensive treatment that's going on, and you also mentioned about the testing that occurs. So there's there's some intensive supervision going on as well while they're in the program. Absolutely. So what does that mean? I mean, you mentioned the alcohol and drug testing. How frequent is that, or what other things are happening during this time of uh, supervision? Well, it can happen a number of ways. Uh, oftentimes, ignition interlock devices are used to help the person stop drinking and driving. And what that is, it's a device that's installed on the car where you're required to blow into the machine, and if there's alcohol present, the car won't start. You can also use that as sort of a home check. A probation officer can call up and say, go blow, go outside your car and blow, and then download that information and see if any alcohol is present. So even when they had not intended to drive, you can still use that ignition interlock device. There's also in-home models where you can just walk over and blow, surprise visits from the probation officer. Now, 9.30 at night, knock on the door, take a look around, look at the garbage, see if there's any bottles. And this is at their home? At their home, you betcha. And then the really good probation officers will come back at 11. And then <laughs> it doesn't take too many times of that happening before the, the message gets out to the whole list of participants, all the participants in the program, man, you can't even, you know, you can't even count on having a good few hours to drink if they've been there once in the evening because doggone, they're going to come back again. <laughs> so it's very, it's very intensive and alcohol being so volatile, you know, it doesn't stay in the system long. It makes it tough. There are also transdermal devices that you can strap on their ankle uh, that will measure whether or not they're excreting alcohol. There's and then transdermal, just so for, for everybody else, the transdermal part, that's basically reading the alcohol through the skin. Exactly. Um, so it's very, very close monitoring. And you say, gee, that's, that's really kind of harsh, isn't it? But no, these are for people who have already proven through their behavior that all other reasonable methods, less onerous methods, less intense methods, have not worked to stop their behavior. To reinforce that comment, what we're saying here is this is not for the social drinker that got stuck that one stop that one time. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, we don't want to waste our resources on that person. You know, even having them go through an intensive, you know, multi-week program is probably not that helpful. That's not the person who had, you know, too much wine uh, at Aunt Gertrude's wedding. This is for the hardcore, high-risk offender who will continue to drink no matter what until they find a way to control that, that addiction. So who's all involved in this whole effort to work with the defendant or the participant, whichever role you want to call that person in? Well, there's first the judge, and here he is the head of the team. She's the one that makes the final decision because it is a court of law. Also present and having input and uh, supporting the recovery of that person is a defense attorney and a prosecutor. You have community corrections, so that's probation most likely, sometimes parole. You have the treatment providers who are actually providing the treatment. You have a case manager, but you're also looking at ancillary services. What else might this person need? Uh, do they need a mental health assessment? Is there going to have to be uh, someone else dealing with the you know, the other mental health piece of it. Uh, do they need housing? Do they need, you know, can they get veteran services? You know, so many of our veterans end up committing crimes. That's why, you know, the new veterans courts are so terrific. But there's lots of veterans in DWI courts as well. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so there is just this array of team members all focused on supporting that person's recovery. You so see, the team would also include uh, law enforcement, correct? Oh, absolutely. Very important. In fact, we know from the Adult Drug Treatment Court uh, that when law enforcement is involved, recidivism goes down. So, yes, these will be the uh, officers who are assigned to the court and to uh, be the extra eyes and ears in the community. It's amazing how many times a participant will be seen in the community by someone and it gets reported back to the team. Well, you know, Fred was playing with his kids at the park or I saw Tom walking out of a bar at 4 in the afternoon. So eyes and ears in the community, very important. Over, over, well, about 85% of their time is unsupervised. And it's those unsupervised hours and the people, places, and things they're doing and hanging out with and going to uh, that are the problem. Well, you mentioned the intensive treatment and the intensive supervision. Is there What's going on with the court itself and how often or frequent do they see the judge or, or if they don't see the judge, the probation officer? How does that work? Well, a minimum of every two weeks at, at the beginning. Uh, we used to think that they had to be seen weekly, but uh, recent research indicates that every two weeks is fine. Um, then as they start making their markers of, variety of going to their meetings, of doing what they're supposed to be doing, you can start gradually letting that off a little bit. So they'll come every three weeks. And then by the end of the program, when they're working on their aftercare and relapse prevention and their long-term sobriety plans, um, they can come monthly. But that's still quite a bit of going to court time. And, and we've often wondered, you know, how important is the judge in the process? And it's mm -hmm. that judges are in incredibly important. If you ask offenders in exit interviews, you know, what made the difference for you? And vast majority of them say it's the judge being there. The role of the judge has been studied by a number of different uh, researchers and the same results over and over again. The judge is crucial. The amount of time a judge spends with each person, minimum of three minutes, doubles the effectiveness. If you can bring it up to seven minutes, it triples the effectiveness. So that judge being there and a constant reminder of this is serious, this is a criminal case, uh, this has consequences if you're not doing well, uh, really, really makes a difference in the offender being able to stay the course and uh, do well. Well, you mentioned the judge, the time frame there of how much time they have to talk at least to have a good benefit here. This can't be all just lecture, the judge saying, do this, I told you so, is it? Oh, no, those, those days of wagging your finger and telling people to behave, uh, that's about as effective as doing that to a teenager. <laughs> that doesn't work. If it's just somebody wagging their finger at you, it's that same external force versus internal. So there's actually a relationship that's developed between the judge and the participant, the participant and the other team members. Uh, that idea of we're all in this together and we're here to support you to find a way to do this and I know you can do it and I know you'll do well. That kind of attitude makes a huge difference in the ability of these folks to do it because believe me, they've tried to quit on their own. They hate themselves uh, for doing what they've done. Uh, no, you know, they've They've done things that are immoral and illegal, and they feel terrible about it, you know, most of them. And they simply can't quit on their own. And that is, that feeling of not being able to do it is the first thing you sort of have to overcome. And as a judge sitting there telling you, I've seen hundreds of people in the very seats you're sitting in do well, and I know you can do it, that goes a long way. One of the things there, there's a couple of things I've, Come, that would make me bring to mind there, Judge, when you mentioned those things. You talked about the addiction and, and the long-term for change here. So the average citizen out there is going to say, well, I can stop anytime I want. What's the problem here? Just have them stop. Uh, we're getting back now to the addiction issues, correct? Exactly. Well, if they could stop, they would have. They wouldn't be in front of you. You know, they're telling you by their behavior that they can't stop on their own. When they're you know, losing their driver's license, they're um, 
drinking is causing problems on the job with their spouse, their family. You know, that, that whole idea of, I, I can do it if I only, you know, gave it my, it, it's a matter of willpower. It's nonsense. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of learning all we know about addiction, alcoholism, and being able to apply the tools that we can give them that will make a difference. Because otherwise they would have stopped. They wouldn't have gotten this third DWI. They wouldn't have been facing a prison term. I mean, my gosh, who would do that willingly? Well, one of the other things I wanted to ask about too here in the court setting, I've heard obviously a lot about, but I want, if you could talk a little bit about, uh, it's called incentives and sanctions. What are those and why yeah. are those important? Well, using just principles of good old behavior modification, if someone is getting rewarded for their behavior, they're likely to continue to engage in that behavior. If someone's getting punished for their behavior, they're likely to stop engaging in that behavior. So it's very simple. And we emphasize incentives over sanctions because we know that sanctions typically have not done well with this population. We incarcerate them. They get out, they offend again, we incarcerate them again. You know, that's punishment. That's that's a sanction for sure. And right now it's just sort of a catch and release plan. Mm-hmm. You know, we catch them, we put them in jail, and we release them to go offend again. So the incentives are, can be very, very small rewards, but it's that idea that, you know, you can do it. Almost like a pep talk, if you will, uh, that support for the change. So... Uh, lots of different creative ideas of how to reward somebody. A huge one is being able to affect their driver's license status. When somebody has spent enough time in the program that a judge would be comfortable in giving them a restricted license rather than just keeping their license in suspended status, and they're doing well in the program and they're all up to date and everything, they can get this license restriction, and, and that's a huge incentive to do well. Other incentives are everything from just applause from the people present to a sort of uh, an attaboy from the from the judge, a small gift cards, um, you know, a candy bar, a piece of fruit. Uh, the the smallest things uh, can be an incentive, but they're big things in terms of behavioral change. And if you think about it as four four incentives for every sanction, that's about the right ratio. We want to be encouraging. We don't just want to have a jail term hanging over their head. Well, and I know that this is somewhat, we've already answered this question a little bit, but just to really reemphasize it again, in some ways, I can hear the person out there saying is, so what, you have to be nice to them, give them something, when if I was there, I would do it automatically? Why do I have to give them something to follow the law? Why do I have to give them something to do what the judge says? Well, that's that's an excellent question, and there's some resentment sometimes. It's you know, I do what I'm supposed to do, and I don't get a gift card to Target. So what, yeah, right. What's up with but the, the fact is that we know that that works, and it's a small thing. You know, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled sometimes by people's resentment because what they're doing is really, really hard. It's not an easy thing for them to do. And so something that you would do automatically is something that they cannot, without help and intervention, do automatically. So I, I think that's the answer is it's not the same as for you and me. They have damaged their brain. They have converted their brain from user to abuser to addict, alcoholic. And without intervention on how to work with that new addicted brain, they're not going to do well. So in, in program, they often say, if you're a cucumber, you can never be a pickle again. <laughs> so what that means is, you can't go back. Once you're addicted, you're addicted, and you have to stay the course and using the tools that you have to be able to continue to remain sober and work your program of treatment and recovery. Well, and I think also, Judge, we can say that if there are ones that can stop when they're told to stop, they don't belong in the program. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. you mentioned earlier on here a phrase there that also might be surprising to some when they're going through the program, you must talk about graduation. Okay. Yes. So what, what's going on with the graduation? Why, again, you know, I, I, if I've been probation and I just want to be gone, you're actually having a ceremony of some sort? 
Yes, most courts do. They have sometimes the uh, a number of people, sometimes it's done individually. Often the judge will come off the bench and shake the person's hand. Uh, it's a recognition of all the hard work, and it's really sort of a send-off uh, to say, okay, now you have the tools you need, and now you need to take the step of what's going to be a lifetime journey. So it's, um, you know, sometimes they have cakes, sometimes they decorate the courtroom, I mean, sometimes it's in the public with elected officials. Uh, what I always tried to do was have uh, the arresting officer attend the ceremony and give them the certificate of completion, you know, the diploma, if you will. And, and that was really a powerful thing for both the officer, who instead of seeing somebody that, you know, was going to be trouble again, uh, is seeing somebody that could actually make a change. And very, very powerful, I think. And for the person, uh, it sort of it, it gives them the chance to express their gratitude, which almost every single one of them uh, thanked the officer who arrested them. When's the last time you heard that, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which doesn't happen to officers very often. So it's it's good for the officers too. So it's a, essentially a celebration of their hard work and completion of, that they that they were able to complete the program. Exactly. So this is not some type of namby-pamby program just saying, uh, oh, it's easy to do, just go ahead and, and go through this and instead of doing the jail where it's actually harder. You're seeing it's exactly reverse there. It's harder to do the program than it is jail. Well, it is because for some folks who have been in jail a number of times, jail is no big deal. It would be a big deal for you and me. But for someone who's been punished over and over again with jail, they become endured to the punishment. It's like, oh, okay, well, that means I go and, you know, watch TV, maybe see some old friends, you know, it'll be a way to just rest and relax for a little while and get uh, time to go off and uh, offend again. And we keep using punishments that would work for us when people we're dealing with oftentimes are not like us because they have done that brain change, they have criminal thinking, there are other ways that they view the world that are not like we view it. You mentioned that there's been a lot of research on drug courts, which is the yes. the, you know, the start of this whole effort and then became DUI courts for the alcohol driver or the DUI cases. What about research on DUI courts and a success? What have you seen or heard about that? Oh my gosh, it's, it's really interesting. As I mentioned before, uh, there's not nearly as much research on DWI courts as there are adult drug treatment courts. But even the very early ones, uh, 10 years ago, showed reduction in uh, re-arrest rate. For instance, Lansing, Michigan, it went from 13, varied from 13% to 33% after five years. So... The thirteen percent being the thirteen percent being the ones that are successful, and thirty three percent not being successful or not in the program. Exactly. So people who who just did court as usual, a third of them were rearrested versus only thirteen percent rearrested. And uh, Michigan, they figured that the rearrest rates are nineteen times greater for offenders who got traditional sentences versus people who. Uh, actually graduated from DWI court. In Georgia, a recent study in 2011, it uh, was a four-year study of three different sites. They figured that they prevented between 47 and 112 repeat arrests, and offenders were 65% less likely to offend if they graduated from a DWI court. And these courts just demonstrate over and over again what we know, that if we use the principles that make up both the foundation for adult drug treatment courts and their separate uh, guiding principles for DWI courts, if those are followed, if there's fidelity to the model, then there's reduced recidivism. There's just no question about it. That doesn't mean that some of them aren't going to go back and reoffend. In the Georgia study, 9% you know, got a new case. But the same study, 26% of those we just got a traditional sentence, got a new case. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty doggone good. It's 65% less, uh, less likely to offend. Well, of course, if this is more intensive with probation and more intensive with treatment, it must cost more than a traditional court, right? 
Well, you'd think so, but in fact, it doesn't. Uh, if you look at the costs, and this is just court costs, uh, criminal justice costs, for every dollar invested in a treatment court, between $2.21 and $3.30 is saved. If you look at costs like health care and children being removed from the home and, you know, other costs of alcoholism and other addictions, for every dollar spent, $27 is, is saved. So when people say they can't afford a DWI court, I always say you can't afford not to have one. It is a cost saving. That has been proven uh, the General Account Accountability Office of the United States government, as well as many other studies, say these courts work, these courts save money, these courts reduce recidivism. Let me follow up with one other area, though, as far as then we'll get into the international aspect. Which agencies, if you know, organizations have come out in support uh, recognizing that DIVA courts are one more tool that should be used? Well, interesting you should say that because there's... Uh, there's groups on that uh, list that, that might surprise you. Everything from the Governor's Highway Safety Association to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the American Judges Association, the National Transportation Safety Board, it goes on and on. The National Association of Prosecutor Coordinators. So the support is across the board, every spectrum of this process. Uh, or problem, rather, every spectrum of this problem is supportive of these sorts of courts. Well, then, these courts started you know, for DWI courts about 15 years ago uh, here in the States and has right. has grown quite a bit already. And, and there's over 600 now. Yeah, so over 600 DWI courts and uh, and more to come. But it's, this is not just a United States program, is it? Or can, we go, can it be taken to other areas, to other uh, countries and expanded on? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So now in about 20 countries, there's all kinds of uh, move afoot in different places uh, from Vietnam to Malta uh, that are looking at uh, adult drug treatment courts. Uh, fewer, not surprisingly, because we have fewer here, uh, DWI courts, but Guam, which I know is a territory, but is different enough culturally that I put it in the international category. Mm -hmm. uh, Guam has developed a DWI court they had a real problem with people from a neighboring island coming over and being the majority of the folks who got arrested. So they did everything from translate the uh, materials into Chukis, uh from uh, English to doing special cultural approaches uh, for intervention. Uh, New Zealand uh, started their first alcohol and other drug treatment courts. Uh, so from the beginning, they've focused on alcohol plus other drugs. In November of 2012, just about a year ago, and they have a DWI track. In New Zealand and Australia, I have seen more prior convictions than I ever saw in the United States. Very alcohol-permissive societies, so the, the judges and the teams that developed the alcohol and other drug treatment courts in New Zealand we're very aware of that, very aware of the research, and have had a DWI track from the very beginning. I was lucky enough to be there and celebrate their first anniversary, and two men who were there the very first day of the court uh, were happened to be there the day I was there as well. And the amount of time that they have been sober, the first year of their recovery, is over 200 days. Wow. Just absolutely amazing. And these are guys that uh, each had more than 10 uh, prior convictions. It's just fantastic. And then in Australia, uh, there's a planning committee in Melbourne, which is in the state of Victoria. It's been supported by the uh, attorney general there. Uh, there's a provider group that uh, just had a conference earlier in 2012 that sort of brought everybody together and started talking about, okay, what changes need to be made? Where is it going from here? It has the support of the judiciary. But I would say by the middle of 2014, uh, they'll be looking at really, you know, buckling down and seeing uh, where they're going to be going in Victoria. And then also in Tasmania, I, uh, you 
mentioned that I was just there, and I met with the DWI Court Planning Committee, and they've been meeting for a while, and they're starting to look at what legislative changes may be necessary, and uh, starting to really look at developing one there. They're keen to do so. So, so far, that's what we have internationally, and I would expect we will have more as time goes on, just like we have more and more adult uh, drug treatment courts. Well, many times, too, it seems like it has to have someone as a champion to at least start the discussion. You mentioned New Zealand, and both of us know Gerald Waters, and I interviewed him on this ep- yes. podcast as well back in episode four, and he mentioned your name, by the way. Um, oh, how nice of <laughs> but he's And he said how you were one of the resources he went to to learn more about not just ignition airlocks, but also about DWI courts. So it sounds like if we get those champions in the various countries to start the discussion, at least, and really raise the bar. Absolutely. Really, it's a matter of getting the information out that these courts exist. I'm sort of a bore at parties because I, I always <laughs> end up talking about that. I was at a little holiday party last night and ended up talking about, um, somebody said, well, what's a drug court? And I thought, oh, you're going to be so sorry you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just see it expanding. Uh, I don't see it slowing down at all. A couple questions here to sort of, wrap it up. But one is the basic question, if someone wants to find out more about this kind of courts, where can they go? Very, very simple. There is a national center for DWI courts. And if you want to find more about what's going on globally with these courts, there's the global center for drug treatment courts. And those are two excellent resources. There's lots of information, lots of places, but those would be the the places to start, I think. And I'll, um, and I'll have those links on those sh- those websites uh, on my show notes as well, Judge, so that if anyone okay. goes to my website, they can find the links for those. Excellent. So the, the big question, I guess, is for the for the John Q. citizen or the person that's just listening and says, you know, this might be interesting to learn more about or to really see if I can get one going in my, my jurisdiction, wherever they're at, whatever country they're in, what's some of the, would you say, are some of the basic foundational steps that they may want to look at to try to develop such kind of this kind of program? Well, I'd say identification of the problem. So whatever uh, agency collects data on uh, the, the scope of the problem, how many uh, people uh, go on to reoffend, how many deaths are caused by impaired driving each year, and so forth in your jurisdiction, that's a, a place to start. And then look at what's being done now. And uh, is it adequate? Is it effective? And, of course, your recidivism rates will tell you whether or not it is. Uh, then you start saying, okay, who else would be interested in this? Obviously, law enforcement, prosecutors, victims groups, highway traffic safety groups. That would be sort of the next level of, of getting people together. And then the courts have to get involved. Um, maybe I should have said first check and see if your local court has one. <laughs> that would be a good place to start. <laughs> but if they don't, uh, I was making the assumption they didn't. Uh, then you go to the court's presiding judge. You go to the um, county commissioners. You go to the uh, state offices of the administrative office of the courts and say, what's going on in my courts? And it, it then becomes a whole collaborative effort. You know, you, would, you know, the next level would probably be uh, doing a committee uh, that meets regularly to say, okay, what do we need to do to make this happen, and so forth. And I'll also, just uh, again for everybody else, um, NADCP has a map uh, on their website that actually says, here's where our, the drug courts and DWI courts are located, and I'll have a link to that in my show notes as well. Uh, excellent, excellent. So you're just back from Tasmania, and working on DWI courts there in Australia and here in the country. I mean, there's nothing left, right? (laughs) Oh, there's plenty left. First of all, there's only 600 courts here in the United States versus, you know, about 2,200 or 2,800, pardon me, um, other drug courts in the United States, and we're only in 20 countries. So there's still plenty to do. Uh, there's, There's not a DWI court in Paris. You know, there's not one in Florence. <laughs> not that you're hinting or anything there, are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'd be very happy to go help them. 
Well, it's, it's a good thing. They really need them as Russians. <laughs> it's a good thing that you uh, retired so that you have the time to uh, to do all this work, Judge. Well, I'll tell you, the retirement is uh, a great thing to do if you have important work to continue, and that's certainly uh, how I feel about this. It's my pleasure to be able to do this. It's what keeps me going every single day and makes me happy. And on that note, Judge, I think that... Uh, that really encapsulates the whole idea here that what you're trying to do is really making a difference. And you're seeing that these courts are making a difference day in and day out. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to join me and chat with everybody here a little bit about what a DWI court is, why it's important, how it's changing lives, and uh, how it's also going through a broader scope here, not just the United States, but other countries and making a difference there as well. So exactly. Well, thank you. Well, it's a good global problem, and it can be a global solution. Well, and there's the best way to say it. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it very much. You're very welcome. So there you have it. As you heard from Judge Hora, a DWI court is a, an effective program that really does change the behavior of addicted individuals. One of the things that came out here last year now, 2013, was through the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB. And as you heard, on a previous episode, I spoke with board member Mark Rosekind. And we talked about the recommendations that NTSB had come out on impaired driving and how to end it, actually stop it from ever happening again. And NTSB came out with 19 recommendations. And one of those recommendations is that for the repeat offender that's addicted, who use a DWI court. NTSB is recognizing the significance of this tool as one more effort, one more component of a comprehensive approach to end drunk driving, impaired driving, drink driving, whatever you call it, wherever you live. One of the things I want to come back to here, I mentioned this uh, before with the conversation with Judge Hora, and she mentioned it a little bit as well. We talk about how hard change is for individuals and what to really understand this for the addicted individual. You may have, I'm sure you probably have heard where at some point someone says, well, addiction is a brain disease. And of course there's that reaction. Oh, no, no, that's not a disease. They can just stop doing it. And 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was hard to tell what was going on in the brain. In some ways, as a, one of the faculty I used to work with, the only way you could really tell was, he would say, open up the brain. Of course, if they're alive, that's a bad thing. Well, now we have new technology that really allows us to look into the brain and see what's happening with PET scans and magnetic resonance imaging and a variety of other tools that are out there to really understand what's being done and what's happening to a person's brain. What we can see is that any use causes acute and some temporary changes in the brain. I mean, clearly, let's face it, with alcohol, we see the change happen just visibly by someone trying to walk down the street that has had too much to drink. The brain has been changed. But typically, for many of us, that's temporary. But when we get into prolonged usage, that actually changes the brain in fundamental and destructive and long-lasting ways. And the images that are now coming out of these scans that are being done have clearly demonstrated just how significantly the brain is changed and really shows just how hard it is to go back to living a substance-free life. That's why it takes these intensive programs. That's why it takes this kind of support from the treatment and long-term intensive treatment to understand what's going on, as well as the intensive supervision to make sure they follow through with everything, to hold them accountable for their actions and to hold them accountable for what they're doing now in changing their behavior. DWA courts are a very powerful program. As you heard with Judge Hora, we talked a little bit about graduations or some courts call them commencements. And I've been to, of course, a number of them when I was back at the National Center. And they are just completely amazing to see and to hear where a person was at before they entered the program. Because many times a person will talk a little bit about where they were at and where they are now during that ceremony. It's a profoundly moving moment. As I mentioned, I'm all about being tough on crime. I got no problem with that. But this still is quite powerful. And to hear where they're at and to thank the judge or to thank the law enforcement officer or to thank the defense attorney or the prosecutor 
for doing their work to make sure that they were able to change their behavior. It's an amazing time. And I would recommend that if you have the opportunity, if you hear about a, a graduation or a commencement going on in your jurisdiction where you live at, whether it's in the United States or some other country, I would recommend that you go to see it and listen and hear about what happened. It opens up eyes. As we mentioned with Judge Hora, there is a map for the United States of where drug courts and DWI courts are all located. I'll have a link to that on my show notes. That's with the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. But I come back to you again, this comprehensive approach to end drunk driving and DWI courts being an important component of that for the repeat offender, for the person that's addicted. You've heard now a little bit about a little bit about these courts. Do you have one where you live? If no, why not? Maybe it's time to talk to the judge or the prosecutor or the sheriff or the chief of police. Maybe it's time to really look into understanding here's a way that we can change behavior and make a difference. Maybe it's time to save some lives. In the meantime, as you think about this and where you're going, thanks for dropping into this episode of Highway to Safety. As I mentioned, be sure to head over to my website at highwaytosafety.com and check out the show notes and any of the links to the topics discussed, the map I mentioned, the NTSB report. That'll all be there on my website. Or if you want to go to highwaytosafety.com slash 12 or 12, that will take you directly to this particular episode. Feel free to leave me any questions or comments, concerns. Have you been to a DWI court? I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. What did you think about what you saw? In the meantime, if you want to read my blog on other traffic safety topics, you can find that at trafficsafetyguide.com, along with video clips and links on a variety of traffic safety topics. If you're looking for a speaker on traffic safety issues, such as distracted driving or drink driving, you can contact me on either website, trafficsafetyguide.com or highwaytosafety.com. I hope you found this episode useful and informative. As I've said, this podcast is about providing knowledge, raising awareness, and giving you the tools to be a safer driver. I'm the Traffic Safety Guy, and I'm here to help you stay on the road to be a safer you. Have a great day.